0: If you are looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than four billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at SharesPost.com/equity.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark. I'm here with Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. Hello, Kate. Hello, and All Turtles founder and CEO Phil Libin. Hey, guys. How's everyone doing today? It's a bit of a crazy day, but we're settling in here, right, Alex?
2: So,
0: uh, for those of us who are not listening to the other episode, we just recorded about 25 minutes all about the Uber S1, which dropped a couple hours ago. We were going to put that aside. We were going to pause, look back at the rest of the week, and talk about some other IPOs and venture capital funds. But during the pre show, our guest mentioned that we should dig into why companies go public and the kind of good and bad of the capital public markets and how they kind of fit into the startup world. So, before we talk about Pinterest and and PagerDuty and Lyft I wanted to give Phil the chance to kind of open uh, the discussion with uh, your broader thoughts about the IPO market.
2: Yeah thanks. Uh, I think it's uh, people really lose sight of like what being a public company is supposed to be for. Uh, it kind of gets trapped into uh, uh, just following the, the horse race the, the up and down the movements of the stock and you know I've been thinking about this a lot for, for years from back in the Evernote days uh, and it seems like for a tech company being public is terrible. Mm-hmm. but also really great and, and, and kind of morally mandatory. Uh, the best news for me about these companies like Uber, like Lyft, going public is they they need to be. They have a moral obligation. Like They are doing important load-bearing things in the world. And the whole reason we decided to have companies and corporations is so they could be transparent, publicly accountable, that anyone who wants to be a shareholder should be a shareholder. And so it's great that some, something as foundational as Uber and as Lyft is actually joining the ranks of hopefully more accountability. Uh, hopefully more transparency. Like that's what it's all for. But
0: it sounds like, given your argument about transparency being a core component of these businesses, that it's a bit late because traditionally companies have gone public much
2: younger. I think it is a bit late. Yeah. And I, I think uh it's like people are talking about how oh the hundred billion dollar you know filing for Uber is like lower than people expected. I mean that's crazy. hundred <laughs> billion dollars is the first time you're gonna like go public. Like that's that's that is pretty late. Now they had, you know, plenty of good reasons to 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 wait. Uh but you know it's really important that it's happening. Um, the part of it that's terrible is there's this fundamental disconnect between the way the, the 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 time magnitude in which public markets make decisions and tech companies make decisions. You know, if you're Uber or Lyft, like your fundamental decisions you're making, you know, based on years in the future, right? You have to think about like what's the world going to be like in a few years. Public markets make decisions based on like the next few seconds. Mm -hmm. So there's just like it's a complete random signal. There's a total incompatibility between what the public markets want and what the public companies need to actually decide.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to take a step back amid, amid all this craziness and actually reflect on why companies go public. Like what you said about being more transparent and accountable; those are the downsides for the you know these companies that have gotten so accustomed to being private, which means hiding everything. They don't have to report their financials. You know, they don't have to disclose all these things. But as they transition to the public markets, they have a whole new set of responsibilities.
2: There's a set of, of, of yeah of moral obligations that companies have. And, and stakeholders that they're accountable to. And it's not just to shareholders, although shareholders are a big part of it. So at a, at a beginning, expanding the shareholding base is already a big moral step forward, but, but companies aren't just accountable to their shareholders. They're accountable to their employees. They're accountable to their customers. They're accountable to people who aren't their customers, who never interact with the company, but who still live through externalities that are created by the company's actions. Like Uber is accountable to the people who have never taken Uber or driven Uber, but are, for example, affected by public transportation. Yes, yes.
0: Or a lack of investment thereof, driven by decreasing right. demand.
2: So like, it, it's really important to hold, especially tech companies who are creating the future, accountable for all of the stuff, good and bad, that they do. And I think being public is a completely necessary first step. So... Whether they like it or not, I think it's 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 good for the world mm-hmm. that, that these companies are going public.
0: I have an example that, that comes to mind when you discuss the pace of technology companies and the length of their bets mm-hmm. and also how public markets are essentially always looking about three months in advance because it's quarterly, mostly out there in the public
2: markets. I mean quarterly, but also it's like... It's all instant at this point, too. So, yeah, quarterly is like if you're lucky. <laughs> like the stock's not moving quarterly. The stock is moving No, no, intraday. but you report quarterly. That's yep. what I was trying to say.
0: Uh, but one thing, one quote that I'm going to butcher because I'm doing it from memory here was uh, a Jeff Bezos quote, uh-huh. uh, the Amazon co founder and CEO or founder and CEO. And he said, you know, every quarter you see from Amazon was baked 18 months ago. Like, we already did all this. This is just the result of it. We're already 18 months in advance. Maybe it was two years, maybe it was 12 months, whatever. Yeah, and he's only
2: saying 18 months because he doesn't want to freak people out because actually it's, you know, 48 months probably. Right,
0: exactly. So you're seeing essentially a very trailing look at Amazon's business as they kind of forge ahead. Yeah. And they, they do occasionally open the door and say, like, hey, this is our, you know, fourth generation of um, robots in our, you know, in our warehouses that we're working on. Yeah. You didn't see the first three, yeah. but they've been doing this. And so it, there, there is a disconnect. But also I think that... In the unicorn era, with these long gestation periods, um, liquidity and therefore transparency is welcome.
2: Well, it's a disconnect that you would never accept as a founder. I would never accept this disconnect from private investors, right? If I was talking to VCs and raising money, and, mm-hmm. and I and I realized that what they really cared about is what I was going to do in the next three months, or really by tomorrow, but okay, at most three months. Like, mm-hmm. there's no way, right? You would be like, well, then what the hell are you guys talking about? Like, this isn't right. this isn't how it works. And yet, in the public markets, like that's what you have to bend yourself to. So it's this weird. It's this weird incompatibility where, as a financial instrument, they just don't make sense for tech companies. And, but as a method for transparency and accountability and sort of moral rectitude, they're probably necessary but, but suboptimal. So I think some, some fundamental re- reforms in public markets is probably way overdue.
0: Well, that's the entire argument behind the, uh, the long-term uh, stock exchange, I think it's called. But on the flip side of that, though, if you are a private company and you do have venture investors, uh, your quarterly board meetings do have impact. Like you can't just not share numbers or or discount your performance because you're making a longer bet. They'll give you some credence for that. But you're also talking about some very aggressive growth metrics you need to hit if you are a VC-backed company.
2: And you can be a, Public company like Amazon that for years can more or less resist the pressure of the public markets, and you know because of the the strength of the of the of the founders' voice and vision and and, and ownership structure. So it's all it's all possible within it. Yes. Right,
1: right. And with that said, the ownership structure. I mean, do either of you guys have any thoughts on this whole dual dual class stock structure that Pinterest and Lyft and a lot of other unicorns adopt, so that they can maintain voting rights of their companies, which I mean ultimately means they have more say than a traditional uh, public company would over sort of like the future of their companies
2: yeah it makes sense why, why companies do it mm-hmm. um, I don't like it like I wish that it didn't have to exist uh, and can you
1: like why don't you like it what's bad about that
2: because um, anything that sets up a structural conflict of interest is bad like this is where like evil in the world comes from structural conflicts of interest right it comes from setting something up where one class of people wants something different from a different class of people And when you have dual structure the whole point of it is you've now split up the both the upside and the risks so, so you now have a guaranteed conflict of interest so you've now set up a structure that guarantees a conflict of interest, so it's not going to lead to anything good. Okay. question is, is it necessary? Because not having that conflict of interest set up will just get you swamped by short sellers and trolls and people like that. And, and, and maybe. So I understand why it's done. I've, I've never done it myself. I've kind of resisted it for anything that I've been involved in, just for moral reasons. But... I can't help shake the feeling that maybe I'm being a sucker by resisting it. Yeah, I agree. Maybe I mean, I think really should have it.
1: We see a lot of these founders do it because they want to maintain control. I mean, uh, as in the case of Lyft and Pinterest, Snap did the same thing. I was about to say. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before. Um, Snap had this dual class uh, stock structure, and um, that gave Evan Spiegel a lot of control uh, and over his vision, and it didn't play out very well. Well,
0: I mean, that's the, the, the example that you hear about founder control of companies through an IPO and into their life as a public company is, it's gone so well. Why would you take the keys away from the driver who got us all the way here? On the flip side, you end up with some sticky situations. I mean, snaps, market value declines have been well known. And um, Facebook has had a really tough 18 months now. And all of its shares, uh, its voting control lies in the hands of Mark, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's one person. Exactly. And therefore, all the blame rolls up to just him. Yeah, but control is an illusion,
2: right? Like there's no, there's no control. Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg has a lot of voting control. Sure. Uh, the flip side to that is he has very little control over the regulatory environment. Uh, and the regulatory environment is probably much harsher than it otherwise would have because he's seen as having unilateral voting control. So like what, what can the European regulators do to Facebook's business? that Facebook has very little influence over? Mm. And would that have been different with a more uh, inclusive and transparent uh, you know, structure? Like maybe, maybe not. So this whole idea of control is, it doesn't matter what you think you control. What matters is what you've actually accomplished and who you've gotten on board.
0: Yeah. I wanna I wanna turn control as an illusion into a forever equity like like like
2: repeat I had saying. the same
1: thought. I was like there's our headline for our, <laughs> our podcast.
2: <laughs> this, this is what like adult life is like, right? It's always like the Fact. battle between the illusion of control versus the illusion of safety. Like none of them exist and you just decide which 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 is more important psychologically for you to believe in.
0: Yeah. And, well children get the illusion of safety and then the chaos has to live in your own head. I mean, one of the worst parts of growing up is that you realize that everyone you thought had it all figured out is just making it up. And uh, that's when you realize that all your airline pilots and your presidents and your generals and all the people <laughs> that run the nuclear power plants are literally people that like Cheetos and fall downstairs. Yeah, that it's is terrifying. terrifying. Okay,
1: uh, before we continue down this rabbit hole, um, <laughs> I think we should just pause really quick. Hey, everyone!
0: Don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post.
1: And uh, actually, we forgot to have Phil explain what All Turtles is. Oh, good point. Hmm. And I think our listeners are probably wondering if they don't know already what is it. So can you tell us just a little bit quickly um, what All Turtles does? Yeah.
2: So I'm a uh, I'm a programmer by by background. Um, I started and, and sold a few startups. Uh, I've been kind of in the startup industry for over 20 years. Um, was the co-founder and CEO of of, of Evernote uh, for about nine years, and then and replaced myself when it got to be a real company. <laughs> um, and then thought I would retire. I thought I would I would become a VC. So I became a managing director at General Catalyst, a great a great fund, uh, for two years, and then kind of realized that like kind of bored of investing i I should have thought through that before i became a vc um but it felt like there wasn't a lot of delta value that i was creating right because being in a top fund like that you're basically chasing the same like 10 stanford kids that everyone else is chasing (sighs) and anyone who i didn't invest in um would just get investment from some other big investor and so do I really think that I, I would be adding more value than somebody from Sequoia or something? Probably not. So it was a way to make like a lot of money, but it wasn't a lot of delta value. It wasn't like, I like to like wake up in the morning and think, what's the value that I'm going to create minus the value that would have been created had I stayed in bed uh, and um, wanted to build things and thought, okay, let's, all well, my previous companies, All Turtles is my fourth one. My previous three, we've started um, traditionally, which is like one idea, one product, one team, one location, and then eventually you know grew much bigger. At AllTurtles, we said, well, why can't we just start medium? Like, can we just start with multiple products, multiple teams, multiple locations, and just kind of do away with a lot of the myth-making, the kind of Silicon Valley myths about how you're supposed to do it and lean startup and all that stuff. So we are a multi-product AI company. Uh, We make products in the future of work and the future of health. And the criteria is uh, products that solve real problems, that help real people, that can be fundamentally profitable, that have no mystery business models, uh, that we can actually deliver and Sell and book revenue and support customers. We started about a year and a half ago. We launched our very first product, which is called Spot, uh, which is an AI for workplace harassment and discrimination reporting. That's doing super well. We've been selling it for about three months. Uh, enterprise sales and just growing really quickly. Have lots of customers. And over the next year, we're going to be coming out with five more five uh, products. Yeah, all kind of clustered around future of work and future of health. Uh, and we're doing it without trying to make little companies. We're just trying to make mm-hmm. high so it's impact one, products. One
0: big company that has six different things. Individual considered.
1: brands within it?
2: Yeah. So uh, we, we, um, it's kind of like Netflix or HBO is, is the closest model where, you know, like Netflix, like Hollywood was totally messed up 20 years ago. Uh, really low quality, really bad business model. Like if you were an external investor, it was oh. a lot like Silicon Valley is in tech right now. Like 20 years ago, if you were a smart investor, you would never invest in, you know, Hollywood. You can't see the air quotes I'm making, but they're 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 dramatic um, because like you'd lose all your money because all the value was captured by, you know, the same 50 insiders that passed all the good deals to each other and then like pushed the risk out to everyone else. And it was really provincial and all the movies were the same. Mm-hmm. And then Netflix came along and said, like, screw all this. We're just going to fix all of it. And then now we're in the golden age of entertainment, right? The, yes. Globally, the quality of TV shows and movies is better than it's ever been. And it's not just made in LA anymore, it's made in many different countries with the best people. And so they make and distribute high-quality things. Their, Netflix is worth more money than all the old Hollywood studios put together, so it's mm-hmm. a much stronger business model, so it really is a golden age. So we we wanna do that for our industry. We wanna do for the tech industry what Netflix did for the entertainment industry, kind of in the same ways, like having a pipeline structure that lets us make and distribute and do full-cycle, full high-impact stuff. Mm. It's really early days. We're only about a year and a half into it. So, you know. Well, right.
0: oh, six products a year and a half into it they already have in the pipeline. Only, yeah, only one shipped. So well, basically, shipped. so sure. six
2: months ago, you know, when I was doing investor pitching, it was all like a lot of jazz hands and nothing to show for it. And now it's like a lot of jazz hands and one thing to show for it, which is great. <laughs> and, but a year from now, it's going to be hopefully no jazz hands because it'll just be like mm-hmm. six five things. or six real launched things. So impatient to get to that point.
0: Uh, this is the first time we've had a guest in equity in over two years that I haven't wanted to interrupt after they finished their second
1: paragraph. It's an, in- <laughs> an interesting
0: moment for the show. Ooh, because- sorry
1: to our other guests that are listening right now. Oh,
0: they're fine. They're all rich. <laughs> uh, the point is, it's just it's nice to have you on. This has been lovely. Um, Thank but you. we should pivot from the discussion about IPO's uh, moral perspective and uh, all turtles into the IPO news of the week. And, um, Kay, shall we start with uh, Pinterest, PagerDuty, or Lyft? It's your call.
1: Okay, we can start with PagerDuty, but I want you to keep it short.
0: Um... Oh, gosh, why? Uh, Okay, so (laughs) PagerDuty, if you didn't hear about this, is a company that went public this year. They provide a SaaS tool that's very popular in development shops. If you are the sort of person who writes code for a living and it breaks, uh, you become persona non grata very quickly, and I believe PagerDuty is the fastest and most efficient way to get updates and alerts about the... uh, how well your code's running. At least That's my understanding by walking around the Crunchbase office and talking to the engineering team. Uh, today, they started to trade. They priced yesterday, and I am pulling up the results today. Aha! Yes! They were around 59.4%, which wow. is an IPO pop that's high enough that you could begin to say, did they leave money on the table? But certainly, it's a great day for the company, and their value is now comfortably over the I think it was $1.8 billion
1: What was their price share down. price? Or what was the share price? um, What they opened at this morning?
0: They opened at thirty six point seven five, and they closed at thirty eight two five. Wait, and
1: they priced at what? They
0: priced at twenty four, I believe. So twenty four to thirty eight. So very very strong first day. I mean, I I don't know. if There's a a moral part of this, but I mean, if you are a company, that kind of reception uh, doesn't make you frown if you have a day
1: like that. Yeah, I mean, that's a crazy pop, though. (laughs) i I, I will just say like I don't want to get into the debate about pricing IPOs, so I'm just not gonna. We're just not gonna do that right now, but. that's what I'm thinking right now.
0: Okay, fine. I'll summarize. It's a SaaS it's, it's IPO, so it's in my wheelhouse. It mm-hmm. is a B2B company that has done well. It is a unicorn debut and therefore liquidity event for one of these famous unicorns. And it did quite well. And I think, you know, we spent so much time on this show and in the Valley, especially talking about Uber and Lyft's IPOs, these, you know... Quasi high growth, very unprofitable companies, it is fun to see a more traditional B2B SaaS company kind of get out and do well um, because it's much easier to understand and it's less jazz hands, as Uber and Lyft's path to profitability is, and more stuff that we can understand, calculate, and uh, graph.
1: Right, which sort of leads us to Pinterest, which is the next IPO that we want to talk about. So, Pinterest um, did price, uh, they set a price range for its IPO, which is expected next week, um, actually Friday. So, we'll have yet another very frantic couple of tapings of equity next week. Um, so Pinterest set its IPO price range at $15 to $17 per share, which gives us a mid-range valuation of $10.6 billion. So uh, moral of the story, or bottom line is that that's under the $12.3 billion valuation that Pinterest had with its series H yes. in 2017, which you know they priced their shares at the time at about $21 a share. So uh, the tech media has decided that Pinterest is a quote, unquote, under-corn.
0: Right which is a phrase for a unicorn that goes public at a lower valuation than its last private round and um, our guest disagrees with this because it's a pretty successful offering. But if you're in the the horse race as Kate and I often are, it is a decline that's notable. but I presume Phil, your take is that you know going out at a 10, 11 billion dollar valuation is still a success.
2: Yeah, so well first of all Ben is a genius. He's, he's uh, I think one of the best people in tech. Um, and we're really happy to see to see it go public. Um yeah I think um, I, I think this is a misunderstanding that people think that somebody lost money if you go out below the last round I don't think anyone actually did I think uh, even the last VCs most of these late stage rounds pro tip um it's actually better to pronounce it the round rather than h it's just it's just better so <laughs> the,
0: so it's, it's a round <laughs> okay good yeah,
2: to know yeah. okay so to know. so most mo- you know most of the time when you get to a round <laughs> it's it's pretty structured. There's there's downside protection. Like yeah. I I doubt those investors are losing money. If anything, it's a little bit more dilution for Ben, and the original mm-hmm. founders. But they just went public, so right. It's hard to feel that bad. Well, they're for go, going yeah. right. They're about to go public, so I don't actually think that it's a bad thing at all. Yeah, uh, and do. I don't think anyone's lost money. I don't think they've let anyone down.
1: I think that's what we need to highlight. So to, the only real downside of being a quote unquote under corn. Um, is that there's a possibility that the last people in will lose money, and I think it's not super likely to happen for one because can't they just hold on to their shares until the values value increases and they could sell at a later date well, if they're really concerned?
2: But well, probably they can't sell until a later date anyway.
1: Well, right, until the lockup period's over, but yeah. even beyond that,
2: and it'd actually be interesting. Like an interesting reform of public markets would that's worth considering would be whether or not you should even allow the price to change until the lockup is done. But that's a little bit. A little bit more radical that would uh, be very radical, uh, but um, the people who invest in late stage rounds are not typically individual investors buying common shares, right The last round was preferred shares. The reason it's called preferred stock is because there's preferences. And the preferences are usually things like liquidation preferences where they get their money back first, maybe anti-dilution, like maybe other stuff. So I don't know the details of that round. It varies. But mm-hmm. I know in general late-stage rounds. And it's very unlikely that the, the professional institutional investors who did that mezzanine round for them would lose money on it. It's much more likely that what it is is they basically will get a slightly better deal than they the yeah. late-stage investors will have their deal slightly improved automatically when it gets priced and they will they'll be happy and again it's a little bit more dilution for Ben and kind of the founding team but and the common stock shareholders which are the employees right which but, I care more about than the VCs uh well absolutely yeah the common shareholders in general uh although again they they've gone from having just paper gains to like actual value right. so like they're they're going to be probably pretty happy at this so yeah I just think it's I think it's fine I don't think anyone I don't, again i don't know the details of, of 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 pinterest's last round but i i doubt that anyone lost money on it and i think it's great that they built a you know, a, a, a roundabout $10 billion uh, worth, you know, company that's uh, doing cool things and will start trading publicly.
1: Yeah, I think that should be the narrative. Uh, that you know, Everything you just said, I agree with. And I think uh, there's been a lot of criticism of Pinterest. And I don't know if you guys read, but there were a couple of stories sort of highlighting the culture at Pinterest saying that it was too friendly and that essentially <laughs> that they weren't getting enough work done because they were too nice to each other. Yeah. And I, I spoke to a few people about this and What I'm hearing is like a lot of people think that's a bit of an absurd claim to make that the culture was actually great. The culture is actually Pinterest strength. And, you know, Pinterest also has nearly 50 percent female employees. Like a lot of their users are women. They have really put a lot of value in diversity and they have a really high NPS score. All these things that a lot of these other unicorns and public companies like Google, Facebook, whatever these uh, stats that they cannot they don't have so i think uh, that's what we should highlight about pinterest rather than the fact that they're under corn uh, who
2: would criticize a company f- who sacrifices growth uh because they have important culture like a lot of people but that but like losers like honestly <laughs> yes like who cares like <laughs> the <laughs> company has no obligation to you mr i need faster growth if you don't want to be part of it then don't be a part of it like the company has obligation to its employees to its to its customers to its shareholders and like having ha- having the management team make a decision that the culture is fundamentally important first of all there's no way to even predict whether or not to, to to measure whether or not it's helped or hurt growth right because of course like if you wouldn't have had the culture and the people they wouldn't have made anything so it may have been worth zero without it mm-hmm. Second of all, even if it is, like, yeah, that's a totally legitimate strategy to say we are optimizing for impact, we're optimizing for culture. And I don't think I don't think uh, Ben or the management team was ever deceptive about this. I don't think anyone looked at them and said, no. Oh, they're pretending to be cutthroat people. <laughs> but really <laughs> secretly they're nice. Right. That face paint's I think fake. it's just
1: yeah. I think it's just so rare to see that kind of behavior for a, a big unicorn, buzzworthy company and people are sort of they're criticizing it because it's not normal. Usually you see this like blitz scale mindset, you see buying growth at all costs. You look at Uber and Travis Kalanick's method of scaling, like they're just very different CEOs. And I think ultimately Ben, which Ben Silverman, the CEO of Pinterest, I think that is gonna pay off well for him. And we'll see Pinterest hopefully uh, you know, continue to accrue value as a public company.
0: One last little note on this. For a long time, Uber's, you know, like toe stepping, hustling culture was held up, I think, across tech as like the way to grow fast. You know, people talk about blitzscaling and all of this. Pinterest provides the other example, a very mm-hmm. successful company with strong path to profitability, historical strong revenue growth, and a culture apparently of being nice to one another. God forbid. In Silicon Valley, we have such a place. Uh, and it's just up the street from here. So, uh, But we should move on. We should. Uh, to Lyft, I think. And uh, Lyft's IPO is something we've talked talking about too much on the show, so we're going to be very quick because we know everyone's very sick of hearing about Lyft. But we'd be remiss to not point out, as we leave its coverage to public market publications, that it's now worth $61 to share. Which is $11 underneath its IPO price, a decline large enough to warrant our attention as Uber tries to make this jump as well. And I, I would say, you know, if you are a high-growth, high-loss unicorn-type company, you should pay attention to this because investors may not be as willing when you get to the public markets to accept your scale of losses if uh, if this Lyft example holds for more than just Lyft itself. And that's... Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a temperature check, if you will, on where the public markets are, because PagerDuty is a SaaS company. It's going to be fine, and it exploded. Lyft is off materially from its IPO price.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, both companies that decline uh, sharply in in the days and weeks after an IPO and companies that pop, both of these are very poor signals, uh, and it's a shame. It's a shame that they that they count for so much, because um, you just get the endless debates about right, leaving money on the table or, or whatever. Pro tip, there's not actually a table. It's more of a sacrificial <laughs> altar that you, you leave money on. Um and, but like it doesn't matter. And it would be it would be great if there was a public market where it could be made to not matter. Like for example, saying, hey, you go public and the price is actually locked until until the lockup you know finishes. And so the company has a few months to get their act together as a public company before it starts fluctuating. I know that's kind of crazy sounding, but it's not a terrible idea. Um because in general, like yeah, if I if like Lyft is declining. So what does that mean? It means that uh, either something materially changed, which I don't think it did, or the institutional investors were the smart ones and like kind of got the value and were able to sell some of it. And then, you know, the new people, the, the, the individual investors who bought common shares in the public markets are kind of the suckers. But that's not really clear about that either, because we don't know what the lockup period is exactly. Or I guess we could know if, if I bothered reading the S one, which I didn't. Um, so it may or may <laughs> not be the best be. equity guest ever. Yeah. I love this. Keep talking. So like, it may or may not be morally good or bad. But then the same thing had it popped. Like it had popped, you could say, well, the whole thing's a scam because it's it's for basically the bankers who took it public to be able to offer those shares which they've pre-priced to pop, as favors to their you know to their clients. So yeah, IPOs have been really suboptimal. For a very long time in terms of just like that process is not good for society what comes out of it like ipos are bad public companies are good it's a shame that you have to go through the ipo gauntlet to become a public company
0: Okay, so can we? I know we're not. This is not on the agenda, but I have a question for you about that because we saw Spotify go public through a direct listing, mm-hmm. and that has gone uh, to the chagrin of many. I think in the banking community, pretty fine. Yeah. It's not been it's okay. amazing either way. It's up like five percent from its. Um, there's some sort of price that they set, narrative price, something like that. Slack is said to be pursuing the same thing, a direct mm-hmm. listing as opposed to an IPO. Yeah. Do you think that well, that's then, close? like even
2: back in the day, Google like tried for some reverse Dutch stuff, auction? Right? Yeah. yeah. But do
0: you think those are closer to what you might call moral, or are they still going to end up uh, sideways a bit through the banking lens?
2: Yeah, you know, it's like the banks can can the, the banks can take most structures and corrupt them. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> so uh, it's good that people are trying different things. Uh, okay, know, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. I think, like again, I think like the long term goal of being public is is very virtuous, and the IPO process itself is is kind of twisted. So, well, un- once- untwisting it. A little bit at a time is probably the best way to go. If Slack does
0: do a direct listing, we're going to invite you to come back, and please do. And we can talk about the results of that. But uh, we need to pivot away from the public markets, because this is a private market show, believe it or not, I know. I'm sorry month. to our
1: audience who prefers to talk about VC deals, because we've been a little bit focused on the IPO markets lately. Well, we
0: have like 25 sorry. minutes a week, <clears throat> and if all the big news is about Uber, it kind of tramples on everything else. But Kate is going to break that pattern and walk us through, uh, kind of in rapid fire fashion, because we're a little bit long today, on a number of new rounds and maybe a Detail about each of them as we go through. Not new rounds, our new funds. New funds. New
1: funds. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna close off just running through a bunch of new venture funds that closed this week. It was one of those weeks where everyone decided, "Hey, let's announce our new fund. We have hundreds of million dollars, and we're gonna invest in more startups Whee! to keep the keep it all going." So, Source Code Capital raised five hundred and seventy million. Alex, feel free to jump in if you have any anecdotes about any of these firms. I Otherwise, don't like their name. Okay. Yeah. Source Code Capital, um, B Capital, which is Eduardo Saverin, Facebook co-founders.
0: He's the one who gave up his citizenship to avoid taxes, right? Yes, him. Ah, what a moral leader.
1: He raised four hundred and six million uh, in a in a first close, so okay. probably more to come. Defy VC, um, which is a former General Catalyst uh, managing director and was a, a former Kleiner Perkins GP.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that the Series A focus fund? Yes. Ah, I see.
1: So they they invest in Series A companies. They say there's a big gap there. You know, they're they're trying to close that gap. Then we have Slow Ventures, which was um, a firm founded by three f- early Facebook employees. Mm-hmm. Um, they raised two hundred sixty-two million. They're a seed fund. They've also raised a, a fifty-five million dollar fund within that two hundred. Sorry, two hundred twenty million. Um, that's going to be just for follow-on investing. Okay. And we have Live Oak Venture Partners, which is a uh, fund based out of Austin, Texas. Um, they're backing Texas startups. They've raised $105 million.
0: There have been a couple of new uh, funds out of Austin. I don't have them in front of me, but Texas's venture capital scene has matured in the last couple of quarters, and it's worth taking a look at if you haven't, along with Utah's scene. So if you want to get your eyes out of the valley, I'd say Austin and the kind of, they call it, Silicon Slopes over in Silicon Utah?
1: Silicon Slopes, and then we, Austin. I've also heard a lot about Atlanta. So a lot, a lot going on in these um, sort of... Uh, middle America, not these elite coastal cities for once, which is really nice. This
0: is equity exactly trying to go to the middle of the country. Uh, yeah, but it's <laughs> worth looking at if you haven't yet. But we have one more called Octopus Ventures, which is done in pounds as opposed to dollars.
1: Yep. European venture capital firm, the only one I'm mentioning this week, they raised um, 83 million pounds It's um, a growth fund to invest in promising portfolio companies, is what uh, Steve O'Hare, our European reporter, has written about them.
0: Steve O'Hare is fantastic. If you don't uh, follow him on Twitter, he's definitely worth a follow. Uh, but that that ends kind of our weird our weird equity week. Um, but I think we've actually covered more on this episode than we usually do in a month. So it kind of worked out beautifully. Phil, thank you for coming in and taking part uh, with us this week. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah,
1: thank you. All right, see you next week. Bye.
0: Hey, Kate, what's this extra crunch thing I keep hearing all about?
1: Extra Crunch gives you access to in-depth coverage on how startups become successful, challenges facing the startup community, Enhanced reader tools on TechCrunch.com, member-only conference calls, and more. Sign up today by visiting TechCrunch.com slash subscribe. But honestly, guys, you should definitely be signing up for Extra Crunch. There's tons of amazing content on the site. I, for example, wrote a deep dive on the fertility industry and the VCs and founders that are leading that new sector. If you haven't signed up for Extra Crunch yet, all new members receive a free trial. And even better, if you're an annual member, you receive discounts to TechCrunch events like TechCrunch Disrupt. Enter the promo code EQUITY to save 20% on an annual membership plan. Again, that's techrunch.com slash subscribe. Select the annual plan and enter the promo code EQUITY.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Picavet, And we will see you all right here next week.